This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Patreon, Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, and Alex. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. If we keep talking to each other, we are able to learn from each other, to ask important questions, to consider new perspectives, to explore ideas, to resist ideology and echo chambers, to defend individual liberty, to see nuance, to learn from history, to change our minds, to recognize ourselves in each other. And in that spirit, I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. And it's something that I wanna share. Carol Hooven is a scientist, a professor, an educator, and she co-directs the undergraduate program in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. She is the author of T, the story of testosterone, the hormone that dominates and divides us. During our conversation, Carol talks about the crucial role of testosterone in shaping male and female nature, contemporary attacks against science, cultural pressure against freedom of speech in our society, and attempts to censor her knowledge within academia. Carol's expertise and book have found her at the center of some of our society's culture wars. I admire her courage in speaking what she knows, in her commitment to open conversation and debate, in articulating and defending scientific truth, and in her humaneness and decency, despite being slandered and misrepresented. We need the most knowledgeable among us to be honest, especially when it takes courage to do so, and that is what Carol has done. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Carol Hooven. All right, Carol. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for doing this. I know you're extremely busy and you have a lot going on. I assume the semester is is well underway. Uh, it's great to meet you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And it's really, really nice to meet you too. And I love hearing about what you're doing. I think it's really important. Thank so you. Thank I, you. I appreciate it. Um, and I know you have answered this question in almost every interview you have done in the last six to 12 months, but I, I, I have to ask it just to kind of set the base for the conversation we're going to have, which is how did you even get interested in the subject of testosterone in the first place? And um, you're welcome to go into that in as much detail as you would like, but maybe if we could just start by going into that story with yourself personally, what resonated with you about, about the study of, of testosterone in general? Yeah, I do have a pretty clear trajectory that if I just reflect, I can sort of connect all the dots to see how I got here. And I can, you know, I think everyone is interested in understanding the opposite sex, first of all. I think that's just something that we all share. I don't think that's specific to me, but some people might develop more of an interest than others because of experiences they had that were painful or confusing. And I think for a lot of particularly academics, I always like to play a little game to try to get into somebody's past and their psychology to figure out why they you know, are obsessed with one particular topic. And a lot of the times, a lot of times they have never really deeply reflected on that. So I always like to probe and figure out what motivated someone um, you know, to study whatever they study. But um, for me, yeah, I had some painful experiences with men in my youth, but I also, and my parents got divorced. My dad wasn't around. Um, I was raised with my stepfather. That's a whole other thing. Um, 
yeah, that's a whole other story. But, you know, men, obviously, then I think, and I had three older brothers. So it was me and three older brothers. And, and the differences and similarities, I think I found really interesting as I got older and I reflected on just growing up. But then that was all kind of in the background. And I went to Antioch College and majored in psychology, which I loved. I was just sort of really motivated to understand human behavior. But I really, I didn't, I wasn't totally satisfied with the explanations that I was getting. I mean, I liked studying that, but it wasn't until my senior year when I took a course called biological psychology. And it's amazing to think back. And I, I, also remember this when I'm teaching my own students who may be seniors and they still really don't know anything about the brain and they might not know anything about neurotransmitters or connections between the brain and the body. So I remember how powerful that was for me in that class, learning about neurons and neurotransmitters and having a more concrete explanation for human behavior and diversity in human behavior. So at that point, I'd done, done a lot of traveling and I was really interested in explaining cultural differences and uh, individual differences in behavior and also ecological differences. So I had just all the traveling, I think, really got me curious about um, culture and personality and what that had to do with the environment. So then after I graduated, I read The Selfish Gene and some other books, and uh, I took some more science classes just at night Uh, to get more of a sort of hard science background. I took molecular biology. I took a genetics class. The genetics class blew my mind because I learned about evolution in that class. When I learned about evolution, I thought, no, 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 it's not just the brain. That's not the most powerful thing. It's it's natural and sexual selection that explains why we have the designs that we do. So then I became obsessed with evolution And um, then I quit my job. I described this in the book. I quit my job (laughs) and um, applied to graduate school at Harvard. Sorry. Um, And I didn't get in because I had no relevant experience. And uh, I just wanted to go to graduate school and get a PhD trying to, you know, learn about the evolutionary basis of human behavior. I'm sure my application was more specific than that, but it wasn't specific enough and I didn't have relevant experience. So I got an opportunity because I was really persistent. I was like, you don't understand. I already quit my job. I'm doing this. What do I have to do? Like I was just really, you know, I was really focused. I was super enthusiastic. Yes, I was naive and fairly ignorant. Um, but I really, I had read a lot. I'd taken these classes and I just was committed to doing this. Um, so I got a job learning how to do research and running the um, a field site out in Uganda. And this was Richard Rangham had established and was running this field site studying wild chimpanzees, um, the uh, Kibale Chimpanzee Project. So I went out to Uganda I'd already been to Africa actually a couple times just traveling, but I'd never been to Uganda. And so that was really a big deal to go out there. I was supposed to go out for a year, but there was uh, a lot of uh, political upheaval and sort of civil wars and violence in in the region of Africa I was in. So I ended up getting evacuated Hmm. early. 
But so I spent uh, eight months out with the chimps trying to learn how to do research and observe their behavior. And of course, one of the most striking things is, first of all, how similar the ways that they're similar to humans, even though we don't share culture. And what really kind of blew my mind in particular was the differences between the sexes and the fact that the males were such so much more physically aggressive in ways that paralleled, again, paralleled human behavior, but with no shared culture. So the males really do spend a lot of time competing for status. And what status gets them is the rights to mate with estrus females. So there's just tons of mating competition taking place. And the females really are much more peaceful on average, on average, on average. Um, everything here is on average when we're talking <laughs> about sex differences and complex behaviors for humans and for non-human animals. Uh, but there, these differences were really striking to me. And given that there was no shared culture, I had already become obsessed with evolution and sexual selection. So I understood a little bit about the theories that, that uh, might explain these differences in terms of evolutionary pressures. But I wanted to know what is happening in the here and now, what is happening in their bodies and brains that is motivating their the particular behavior. And that's when I really started getting turned on by testosterone because that seemed to explain a lot. But at that time, I really didn't know very much, but that's what I ended up focusing on when I finally did get into the graduate program at Harvard in biological anthropology. And then the rest is basically history. Um, I then have just been obsessed with hormones in general. I find fascinating uh, how they shape our behavior and trying to understand that from an evolutionary point of view in terms of all different kinds of behaviors, you know, like wanting to exercise or what kinds of foods you eat or feeling anxious. Um, but in particular, sexual behavior, I find really interesting and trying to understand how our inherited biology interacts with the kinds of environments that we find ourselves in, in these modern environments. And how do we explain what we see around the world and variation across different cultures? And there are some patterns that are just completely persistent across cultures. And those mirror to some extent what we see in non-human animals, like in the chimpanzees, like males are much more physically aggressive. They tend to want more mating opportunities and more sexual partners than females. For females tend to be more nurturing. There's nothing wrong with these differences. They're not inevitable. Uh, culture plays a huge role, but there's just no denying, you know, I have now spent a year and a half writing this book on testosterone. There's just so much evidence that this is the most potent force, proximate uh, mechanism, which means in the here and now, the, the ultimate explanations for behavior have to do with our evolutionary history and proximate mechanisms have to do with what's going on right now in our bodies and in our environment that shape our behavior and the interaction between, say, our genes and the um, environment. And testosterone, I can't find, there's just no more uh, potent explanatory factor, say, than testosterone in thinking, in uh, explaining sex differences in uh, human behaviors, especially the ones that I just mentioned. So that's a long, kind of a long answer, but that's how I got to where I am. And it's just an awesome, endlessly fascinating topic. So 
yeah, I'm happy that that's what I landed on. Yeah. And for somebody who has absolutely no idea what testosterone is, they may have heard it in the culture. Somebody may have mentioned it. What What is it and how? what, what kind of, it's specific to humans, what are, again, you mentioned the word average a few times there, right? This is, a lot of this is related to probability and, yeah. and math to some extent. What What is the general difference in, expression of testosterone in between men and women, for example, in, in the human animal. So when did you learn about what testosterone was? Probably around puberty, I would imagine, is when, <laughs> when, that, is when that word started to get floated around. But to be honest with you, I didn't yeah. know much about it or I didn't, I also didn't know that there was, even within a gender, often wild fluctuations in its expression yeah. in, in men, for example. Yeah. So uh, can you share anything about your own experience in puberty? I mean, I, I, what I remember is it, it, it just being floated around as being the reason why we were becoming the way we were becoming, right? What like was the, the way you were becoming? You know, long, f fundamentally interested in women in an extreme way. Um, right. Also, I think beginning to assert ourselves socially in some yeah. ways where for some guys, and I, I may be completely talking out of my ass here, but for some guys, that was obviously athletics. Yep. That seemed to be a, a way in which they yes. wanted to, to show that show off. And for some people like myself, it was more intellectual, you know, uh, asserting themselves with their aggression yeah. sort of uh, with intellectual pursuits. Um, yeah, that's interesting because my son, I write about him in the book a little bit, too. Um, he's 12 and I always torture him by talking about puberty nonstop, basically, um, and what it's like for him. And I was pretty athletic uh, at that age. And I was the one who played baseball and I wanted him to be like me. I want yeah. to throw the ball with him. I wanted him to, to be that kid. And I have realized I can't make him into my version of him. I want to, you know, just work with who he is and what he, who he's becoming. He sounds like he was like you, he's just not interested in sports. And, and that's fine. Like he reads a lot. <clears throat> and he also, I think, competes um, maybe intellectually is his, is his thing. You know, he really likes girls. He gets a lot of crushes. Um, and that's been going on since like kindergarten. So, <laughs> 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 you know, really, like he's just always been really into. Sorry, I shouldn't be talking. He'll be <laughs> um, but yeah, the, but there are different ways of trying to be successful socially. But somehow it does all seem to be around ultimately i hate to say mating because the kid's only 12 but it seems like that's ultimately what it's about it's about being cool being having some status yep. but then what are you going to do with that why do you even care well i think you want girls to like you or yep. boys if that's what you're into you know but um yeah and i what's been interesting in writing the book and talking to people about it on you know, engaging with people like you in different ways is what I love asking about what puberty was like, especially for men, because, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but you associated testosterone with assertiveness and sex, really. And, yeah. and people talk about being obsessed with girls and sex, or again, or boys and sex, depending if, you know, who you, who you're into, but that it's, over can be overwhelming and yeah. surprising and that it just kind of takes over so much and and different people handle that different ways and have different levels of comfort with those feelings um but hardly anyone ever felt comfortable talking about it yeah. and how they felt so what is a 
hormone. So yeah, people, especially males who've gone through male puberty associate, like, just like you said, sex and maybe assertiveness or aggression or athleticism or um, competition with testosterone. And I think that's correct. (laughs) I think that's right. But then what is it? It's a steroid molecule that is produced by your testes in quantities that are during puberty, 10 to 20 times uh, higher. Even in puberty, it can be higher than that. But on average, 10 to 20 times the concentration in females, which are it's you know just exceedingly low in um, females. Females have much higher estrogen, which is very important to them um, for their you know obviously uh, pubertal development. Just like testosterone is important in males for the maturation of the reproductive system, but also um, coordination of reproductive behaviors with the maturation of the reproductive system, just like estrogen does. Again, for girls. So there's the, and this all begins for, for males in utero. Mm. So you, you need testosterone to develop a penis. You need, uh, testosterone to develop your prostate and then to develop that whole system in utero. And what also happens is when you have these very high levels of testosterone produced by your testes, when you're developing inside your mom, which is pretty amazing that that's all going, like I had a boy, it still blows my mind to think that his little testes inside of me (laughs) were growing his penis and shaping his brain so that in puberty, he would want to engage in the type of behaviors that you just talked about, which is common across mammals and tons of other taxa too, and other species. Um, So it is this steroid hormone that's produced by your testes that develops your reproductive system, makes it so that you can produce sperm uh, beginning in puberty, and that you have the ability and desire to use that sperm for what it's there for, which is to, I don't want to say, I'll just say it, shoot it into a female's reproductive tract. That's the goal from an evolutionary point of view. And this one little hormone coordinates all these processes that are physical and behavioral that promote what you need to get that job done. It's a, such a powerful hormone. It, it directs that whole pubertal transition from little boy who really, you know, sex is disgusting um, to a man, right? Yeah. In, in body and deepening your voice and growing a beard and developing your penis and your size of your testicles and producing sperm and you're getting your brow ridges growing and chest hair and all of that. Uh, and then the overwhelming desire to have sex and see naked women or again, men, um, that's testosterone. And we know that it's testosterone from, you know, there's just tons of evidence from non-human animals and humans. And I write it in the book about transgender transitions, which is really interesting because you could see, okay, somebody like me, a female, what would happen if I uh, took male levels of testosterone. How would I change in body and behavior? And it's all in the, what happens is exactly what you would predict. And if you, Dan blocked your testosterone and took estrogen, you would experience before the physical changes, a reduction in sex drive, um, reduction in muscle mass over that takes much longer, um, more emotionality, uh, you know, 
all the things that you would kind of predict given the sex differences that are observed basically across every human culture. Yeah. I want to underline a couple of things that you alluded to there. One is related to um, the the averages in, I guess it's the expression of testosterone between the genders. I believe if, if I heard you correctly, you said it's somewhere between 10 and 20 times the yes. amount, generally speaking, in men versus women. Is that adult yes. men and women? Yes. Yeah. Um, and in terms of, this was something I wanted to talk to you about in, in, in researching you before the conversation. I it was one of the more fascinating things I remember hearing you say, which is detailing the psychological lived experience of a biological woman who begins to transition by taking testosterone, for example, uh, into becoming a man and what that lived experience is like psychologically for an, a person like that. If you could, you alluded to this, but if you could tease that out a little bit, I, I it's, yeah. it's such a fascinating story. It is fascinating. So in the, that's one chapter in the book was about uh, the evidence from transgender people who have these massive changes in testosterone. How does that change their bodies? I, I it, um, in that chapter, I actually went into a fair amount of detail and for, in terms of the science explaining excuse me, the voice changes and some of the physical changes, but I also really focused on sexuality, a little bit on emotionality. Um, but I should also say just last week, I did a podcast where I got to interview three trans men who had lived as women. They were born female um, and had lived as women and in their late twenties, early thirties transitioned to living as men by take by um, taking male typical levels of testosterone. So I did do these interviews uh, in the book, and I let these trans people tell their own stories. But then I I contextualize what they had to say. So a male to female person, a female to male person, a person who was um, born female, transitioned to male, and then was not happy with it, and yeah. detransitioned and went back to living as female and talked about what that experience had been like. And I also talked to a 12-year-old who was just starting puberty blockers and was uh, then actually now has gone on to, um, this person was born male and is now had puberty blockers and I believe is now um, starting estrogen. So, yeah, so I've investigated the scientific literature to see how it kind of jives with what the stories that I'm hearing from people, and it really has supported what the people I've interviewed have told me. So these changes are, while they're variable in real life um, across transgender people, all have, you know have different experiences, take different levels of hormones, have different desires about what they want to achieve. The the trends are very robust, and so. If a female person, and this is somebody who would have transitioned after going through female puberty. So that's important because there are people now who are blocking their natal puberty and are transitioning with hormones and going through something like the opposite sex puberty. That's a whole other ball game. They will never have the development of their um, sort of natal reproductive system. And that's just a, a, a whole other podcast probably. Um but so the main changes are shocking. So for me, living as a woman, one of the things that most women experience to some degree is being objectified sexually by men. Um, and, you know, to it's complicated as a woman because to some degree, 
I will, I think you kind of want to be a little bit objectified. You want, depending on who you are and your um, sexual orientation, you know, it's complicated, but uh, people of course want to be attractive. They want to be found attractive in general. And however, objectification, sexual harassment, sexual assault, of course, is extremely unpleasant. I don't have large breasts. However, um, people who do, uh, it can be really, really traumatizing, especially if you're young and you're not even feeling sexual yet to have men constantly staring at and commenting on your breasts. This, This can be a horrible experience to be sexualized before, you know, and objectified before you maybe you're not even heterosexual and and you don't like men at all and they're ogling you all the time. So there can be very, very painful experiences associated with that. So I'm just laying the groundwork also because um, many of the people who do transition from female to male are attracted to females. They don't have any sexual interest um, in men. And if they go through female puberty, it can then can be extremely, um, difficult for them to be sexually objectified by men, especially when, you know, they just are interested sexually in, um, other women. So for instance, the people I talked to last week on this podcast, transparency, these were people who had lived as women who for the most part had been sexually attracted to women and then took testosterone. Uh, and transition to living as men. And they all, you if you saw any of them on the street, you would never have any idea that they had been born female because testosterone does an incredible job in people born female. You grow a beard, you get a receding hairline, you get big muscles, you get you know um, hair on your chest, your voice gets deeper. It's just very easy to pass as male when you go from female to male. But before those physical changes happen, the desire for sex really intensifies, just like you described in going through a a male puberty. So for the first couple of years, these people who had lived most of their lives as women really struggled with their and I, I grilled these people, I, these guys I talked to last week, grilled them about what does it feel like to have been lived as a woman, resented that male sexual attention to living as a man. They now felt that attention towards other women. They started feeling um, the tendency to objectify women sexually. Uh, they became obsessed with women's breasts almost immediately. This to me just blew my mind. Like, yes, I'm aware that men like boobs, right? What woman isn't? But to know that the for, for everyone I've talked to, that that taking, and this doesn't mean this happens for everybody. Again, there's a lot of you know variation in experience, but taking male typical levels of testosterone seem to cause, again, it's it's an association, so I can't say exactly what the cause is. However, everyone's described basically the same thing. They would zoom in on women's body parts, butts and breasts, depending on the person, uh, but breasts in particular, they found it very hard not to look, and they started obsessing about the body parts. And they said when they were living as a woman, sex was more about the person, the relationship. 
and about feelings. And then it started to be more about bodies. Mm. And this is before any physical changes. So hearing people who lived as women say this to me and say that they had an inner struggle because they knew what it's like to be on the receiving end of that kind of attention, but they couldn't help it. And they can control their behavior, right? Men can control their behavior, right? But I think we women need to understand something about what it is like to be a man. They're not like just being assholes. It's difficult. What I am hearing from men is that they're overwhelming feelings that are difficult to navigate, to figure out how do I behave when I'm sexually interested in someone? How do I behave and not be a jerk. <laughs> like yeah. It's not so simple. So I did sort of come out of all this with more compassion, um, oddly. And uh, so that was the sex part, that the desire for sex became like the most, one of the most important things in their lives. Yeah. Um, and it became more about body parts and the ability. The other thing is that the ability to access the more vulnerable emotions of like tenderness, um, crying, seem, crying across the board seems to really be inhibited. The, mm. the feelings might be there, but the tears don't come. Yep. That's not the case for everybody. Um, anger was retained. So whatever however angry the person was before that was retained, but other emotions were um, less available. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I find, I do find all that just mind blowing. Yeah. Uh, and it's important, I think for women to learn more about how that works. And I think testosterone is a great way of looking at it because it helps us be a little bit less judgmental. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't judge behavior but it does mean we can understand more about what someone's experience is and what the context is. Yeah. And to put testosterone into context as, you know, for an audience that might be listening to this who are mostly clearly not scientists, in your mind, is testosterone the most important hormone that distinguishes the, the genders in, in human beings? Uh, anything you can add that would put testosterone in its place of its importance in the general expression of hum of human beings, both, both men and women, I would love to learn that. Yeah. In terms of hormones, there's just no, in terms of any aspect of our biology, yeah. there's nothing more important. And the influence of testosterone is you can see the influence in non-human animals clearly. You know, you can castrate an animal and the sex drive and the, and the aggression just totally plummets. They become more female-like in some ways. Yeah. And we can we see in humans that the sex part, it, it, what's very clear is that when you look at the transgender um, research, we know that the sex part really does start to look just very masculine. And there is a something, just stick with me here, but there is um, a little bit of a wrinkle when trying to understand the significance of the testosterone transitions in transgender people and what that means for understanding sex differences in um, people who are not transgender. So I talked about the high testosterone levels in males in utero. That testosterone, it's shown very clearly, um, the difference in testosterone levels is a big part of the explanation for why juvenile animals show sex differences in behavior. So the testosterone that you 
were exposed to, that your brain was exposed to in utero. So testosterone, since it's a steroid, means that it's a derivative of cholesterol, it's fatty, and it can pass freely through um, neuron cell membranes. So it can get right in there and it affects gene transcription. Um, so it can shape the way neurons grow and develop and the way the brain grows and develops. So we know that testosterone's actions in the brain, in utero, are largely responsible for the high levels of rough and tumble play in male animals, including little boys. So this is a, you know, sex difference that's present across human cultures. Everybody can see it with their own two eyes, but people want to, a lot of people want to say that this has to do with the patriarchy or socialization. That's just not true. It's just because we see the exact same patterns in non-human animals, like male chimps have much higher rates of rough and tumble play than female chimps. Same thing with rodents. And if you manipulate the testosterone level in utero, you can manipulate the expression of rough and tumble play, which is a reproductive behavior. So you know, play is practice for adult behaviors that keep us alive and reproducing. Females need to practice behaviors that keep them alive and reproducing, which has more to do with nurturing and relationships. And we see that play out in humans and non-humans. And males need to learn how to compete physically for status and to understand the signals from other males. And they, it needs to be fun. So my kid does that, even though he didn't like sports, he loves still to some degree playing in a way I, I just don't see. The literature shows that this is not the case. And I don't see girls, two girls getting together and tackling each other um, and you know pouncing on each other and trying to pin them down. That's just not, but boys are doing that all over the place. Yeah. And we know that that is um, because of the difference in testosterone levels. So this is a huge digression, but the point is that testosterone is shaping the brain before puberty yep. to, so that the elevated testosterone that, that begins in puberty can act on the, the masculinized brain. Yeah. So yeah. that if we're talking about transgender people, you do not have these uh, brain differences that I'm talking about. Like a female person would not have been exposed to high levels of testosterone in utero. She would not have a masculinized brain. So when she takes male typical levels of testosterone in adulthood, we can't assume from the changes that she or now he experiences that that's the full suite of what yeah, testosterone yeah, is going to yeah. be doing. Sorry, that was a long sort of yeah. technical explanation. Um, and it may help to explain uh, partly why we don't see difference. We don't see a lot of differences in physical aggression. And part of the reason for that is also that most men aren't physically aggressive to start with. So there's just very low levels in most people. What we're interested in, in terms of aggression, are the extremes of aggression, which are dominated by males in terms of having high levels of physical aggression, including rape and murder, et cetera. That's basically all men. This is, so we're, we're talking about averages and there can always yes. be differences in individual human beings who you meet, right? Who you, you can have, you can, there, there are men who are extremely nurturing and probably may, that may map onto, you can obviously speak to this if you'd like a lower testosterone level in them, generally speaking. And not mostly, necessarily. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, but so, there so, are, but there are, you're, yeah. So there are men who are, most men in fact are not physically aggressive. Um, 
And there are many men who are much more nurturing than many women. And there are some women who are extremely physical aggressive. So yes, we're just talking about these. I'm not, you know, we can't say, we can't say that testosterone or any other factor is explains the behavior of one particular individual, but we can say that these patterns that we observe, you know, have some clear explanations that are consistent with non-human animals, evolutionary theory, you know, and are prevalent across cultures. Yeah. And, and related to that, right. That testosterone, you know, an elevated testosterone rate in men, for example, is not, you know, is not necessarily a inevitability that that men that man is going to be physically aggressive or violent right these are i would love to get your thoughts on that that you know how how we should think culturally as an informed people about what a higher testosterone rate what the expectations should be of yeah. men generally yeah so there's a couple of things that i just want to make sure are clear one is there's variability of in testosterone level among men yep. and i should just say within the healthy normal range you really can't predict much of anything like sex drive or aggression um, from somebody's testosterone level within the healthy, normal range, right? So those what, what differences- What is that for, for somebody who doesn't know, what is the, the range for, for men, for example, a healthy I range? mean, it, it depends on what unit of measurement you're, you, you're talking about. It could be um, like- uh, I don't want to even put a range out, right? Yep now without um more context because there's a huge um variation i just wonder because i have a different um units in my book that, I, that i'm ready to kind of say okay um, no problem but hold on yep so i can't remember if i use nanograms per deciliter or what i have in here because uh, i want i kind of want to use the same one that i have in the book okay but oh here Okay. Yeah, I do have nanograms per deciliter. Um, so uh, the low end for men is 200 nanograms per deciliter and the high end would be a thousand would be high, but it can still go over, over a thousand. Yeah. Um, and for females, you really have almost like close to zero, wow. um, to about 50. And again, there's a huge amount of variation in those ranges. And within a man's life, he's going to vary across his range throughout the day. He's going to, that uh, whatever level he has is going to vary. He'll wake up with his highest levels and then he'll have the lowest levels at night. He'll have some ups and downs depending on social interactions. And then even, um, so you mentioned nurturing when men, get into a stable pair bond, their testosterone, and we see this in non-human animals in which, in some non-human animals like birds that form long-term pair bonds where the male invests in the offspring, yep. there is a suppression in testosterone because that promotes nurturing behavior because high testosterone promotes sort of aggressive, competitive, mate-seeking behavior, which is not adaptive if you have kids, depending yeah. on the environment, um, you know, some men may do well by neglecting their kids and looking for more mates. Uh, but other men will do very well by sticking with one mate and ensuring that she is protected, that she has resources and that the kids are protected and have resources and have 
to parents. Um, that can be the best reproductive strategy for many, many men. And it's suppression in testosterone can promote that. So there can, there are these really interesting um, environment hormone interactions where it's not just testosterone uh, promotes certain behaviors in a vacuum. It's that there's this constant interplay between yeah. the social and ecological aspects of the environment and shapes male behavior in a way that tends to, on average, maximize reproductive success. And, and also based on that male's personal characteristics and history. And um, yeah, so there's a lot of complicated factors that go into that but now i can't remember well i, I was i was getting to me. this which i think is a, is a fascinating component to this which is i and I, I guess i should just ask the question am i right that an elevated testosterone level in a man does not oh, necessarily right. map onto an increased sex drive or an increased yeah yeah so that's that what i'm saying so um so that is true that you can't predict sex drive or aggression or any of that stuff from somebody's testosterone level what does seem to matter is changes within an individual um, in their testosterone level. So again, like if you pair up uh, and it's in a way that is in sync with the uh, relevant environmental stimuli, because if you just go into an experiment, so this is what I have a little bit of an issue with some of the research on which some of it is very good, but some of it is difficult to interpret when you just go to a lab and someone increases your testosterone and you're sitting there watching a movie or you're supposed to put hot sauce into somebody's drink. Well, is that really ecologically relevant? You know, does that really mirror the um, adaptive kind of situation where this particular behavior would be expressed, where the change in testosterone would be happening in a particular, you know, social environment, right? Yep. And that's the way that it works. It's like all of this is contingent on the social environment so that if you have a suppression of testosterone and you have a baby present, then you're going to, you know, potentially engage in more um, caregiving behavior with your baby, increases your baby's survival. But outside of that environment, you know, who knows how you're going to change. You might see no change whatsoever. Um, and also, similarly, when men are competing with each other, whether it's through sports or whether it's say playing chess, like in a way that you might have competed, you know, maybe you still do, um, but maybe even in a non-physical way in those environments where men feel like there's something status related on the line, we tend to see on average, again, changes in testosterone that have to do with competitiveness and then winning and losing. Mm -hmm. And it does seem in, in non-human animals and to some extent in humans that um, being competitive and being successful in competitions against other men leads can lead to an increase, a temporary increase in testosterone that has something to do with uh, upregulating dopamine um, and my account is signed in from another device. Um, and it can be rewarding and reinforcing um, for male animals, including men. So yeah, so the having higher testosterone, if you're in the normal range, doesn't really predict anything, but changes in testosterone, especially big changes. Like if you have uh, prostate cancer and you're being treated for that and your testosterone is being blocked, you will feel effects of that after some length of time, like your sex drive might plummet. Uh, you might feel less competitive even overall. Yeah. So it's really, 
just to clarify that, if I'm understanding it correctly, it's not necessarily what your baseline level tends to be with your testosterone That's as right. a man. It's the shift that may be happening in your life, which largely can be influenced by envir environmental factors. Yeah. And those can be long-term shifts and those can be short-term shifts. And those seem to be um, important. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to spend the rest of the conversation about, uh, which is really the heart of why I wanted to meet you and talk to you related to this topic as it applies to our country and our society and, and even academia, which is where you spend a lot of your time. Um, you know, a lot of what we talked about today seems to just be a discussion of basic objective reality and about human nature and uh, evolution and the truths about animals in the animal kingdom. Um, maybe we can kick off this segment of the conversation just by speaking about your own experience teaching this subject and writing this book and what it has been like in your environment, in academia, as a woman in academia, speaking about these subjects. Okay. Um, so it's easy to talk about the teaching part. Here's why I get a start getting okay. emotional because okay. I really, really adore my students. Um, I, they're the reason I'm here. They're so smart, obviously, but that's not even, um, they're trying to figure out themselves and the world, right? They are earnestly trying to figure out who they are, how they fit in, what forces are shaping them and, and the world around them, right? You know, I'm still trying to do that. But like when you're in college, that is really something that you're engaged with in an important way. So I take that really seriously. I feel like that's a huge honor to be part of that. Take your time. To be part of that process. And one of the things um, that's been really important to me is that a lot of the students who take my classes are students who have various kinds of differences and want to understand how they work. They are all kinds of hormonal differences and sometimes um, just physical disorders or somebody in their family has diabetes or, but also um, a lot of what we used to call gay kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't, I'm not comfortable using the term queer because I still don't really understand exactly what it means. Um, but also kids who are questioning their gender, going through gender transitions, um, or have uh, differences of sexual development. And these are some of these students I've formed pretty close relationships with. And what I love is, and then there's just people who want to understand the world. And People come in with their own ideas and their own biases, as I have my own ideas and biases. And what's amazing is that when you trust your students and they trust you and you allow divergent viewpoints and you um, are clear about your own I guess, vulnerabilities and questions and you yep. share those, I feel like that helps set the stage for um, a lot of questioning, yep. which yep. is what how I think it should happen. People challenge me. I challenge them. We look at the evidence. We have fun. I cry um, <laughs> just because that's what I do. Um, but that so far, I mean, that has been Wonderful. There have been a few bumps. Not everybody's happy with the way I do everything. And, you know, sometimes I've made mistakes. And, but overall, I'm so impressed with the ability 
of my students to reflect and be open and learn. And we don't always agree. And some people are offended. And it's not the end of the world. We talk about things and we analyze the evidence and it seems to work. And I, uh, you know, I'm so, again, appreciative and impressed. And I just don't want that to go. That's the teaching part. But I think you had more to your question. Sorry, it is right. it is difficult to talk about. So just bear, bear with me. Um, yeah, you, but you had more to I ask, did. I think, about. Yeah, I go did. ahead. And I can completely understand how this, this could get emotional for you. Um, you know, so it sounds like the experience of having that, really what you're talking about is open debate, open discussion, curiosity, um, exchanging ideas, learning, uh, developing over time. And it, it, from what I understand about your experience, it does sound like the in, in classroom experience has generally been quite positive and meaningful for you. Um, what outside of the classroom, outside of your, your venue for teaching, what has the experience been like for you over the last year or so related to the book, your expertise, the subject matter generally? Yeah. So um, my personality is one where I really just want to be able to say what I think. Yeah. And everybody who knows me knows that that's the case. Um, and that's just, I think, the way that I, I was born. I, I That's just for whatever reason, I think it's important for people to be able to say what they think. And sometimes I say, you know, too, <laughs> too much. Yeah. And that's something I admit, you know, I have to work on. I always, that's something I kind of have to monitor. But, um, and I want other people to be able to say what they think. And that's really, really important to me um, because I think that's how we learn and grow. Yeah. And I also just find it fun to have my views challenged and to challenge somebody else's views and to see what the evidence is. That's what I, I love. And my students love that. And that's what I think education is supposed to be, yeah. especially higher education. And that's for the most part, what it has been, but things are changing and in ways, in many ways that are really positive, we're becoming aware of the rights of people that we maybe, you know, did not get enough attention before, definitely did not get enough attention before. And all of that is really positive. But I think some of the complications are that, yeah, well, this is just such a big issue. Some of the complications are how do we, to what extent is what we say infringing on the rights uh, maybe to protect people who feel vulnerable. Cause I, I feel like that is what is, is happening that my um, things that I want to say, or that I believe to be true might be perceived by some other people as being offensive or hurtful or counter to their particular social agendas or rights, um, et cetera. So, but what I have found in the classroom is that, students are perfectly capable of responding to ideas that they find offensive or even counter to what they believe or that make them uncomfortable. Or, you know, I'm someone who I've had experience with sexual assault. I've had all kinds of other issues that I don't have to go into that could be part of my identity, but I don't advertise that stuff. Um, but I have found personally, and this doesn't mean it's right for everyone, but for me, it's okay to talk about things that are relevant to sexual assault, et cetera. I kind of want to understand um, 
behavior and my own history. And it can be painful to confront some things. And I feel like if you don't want to confront those things, then you probably wouldn't want to take my class. But if you're going to come take my class, we're going to talk about sexual assault and and we're going to talk about sex differences. And that means that I'm going to say that there are male and female and that I'm going to say this has to do with your genes and how they um, help to differentiate your gonads. And that has to do with what kinds of gametes you're designed to produce, right? So to me, this is a scientific fact, but this very fact is now something that people perceive as offensive or painful. And I cannot control how um, people respond to these, you know, talking about scientific reality. I can be aware of their responses, but do I stop talking about these things? Do I worry constantly about whether anyone's going to be offended? Do I feel responsible for everybody in the world's response to, uh, for instance, me saying that there are two sexes? No, I don't feel responsible. I care about people's feelings. But I don't think we're doing anybody any favors by protecting them from reality. I think to a certain extent, students for sure in college, graduate students, faculty members need to learn to deal with uh, biological scientific realities. To, to, and, steal, to steal men, the people who are maybe in opposition to what you speak about, right? To, to give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, where where do you think this reluctance to speak in the way that you do to present the evidence that you do comes from? And what primarily scientifically is your objection to what you're seeing being posited as truth or um, an alternative perspective to the facts that you're presenting in your class? Yes. Good. OK, so there's the scientific reality and then there's the reasons why people resist it. Right. And those are two different things. So there are social movements, and I write about this a lot in my book, and I try to explain why I think that certain ideologies or social movements or belief systems um, tend to de-emphasize certain biological realities. So we taught we touched a bit on some of this in the conversation. You talked about biological determinism. Does the fact that men have more testosterone and therefore are more predisposed to objectify women or even commit some sort of um the more pre the high testosterone might predispose men to being more uh physically aggressive. That's kind of a scary fact. Yep. Right? It's hard to confront because it seems like it justifies bad male behavior. Not only does it seem like it justifies it, it seems like we're saying, well, it's biology. There's nothing we can do. It's inevitable. Men are just going to behave like this and we just have to put up with it. Right. But both of those things are false. We know from just looking across cultures that rates of physical aggression and sexual assault vary tremendously. And it's because of the culture. It's not because of different testosterone levels. It's because of cultural or environmental norms within a family, within a community, within a country, within a region, um, or even having to do with ecology or temperature or poverty or whatever it is, right? So the culture has a huge impact on 
the expressed behaviors, right? Not necessarily on the testosterone levels. So we know that that kind of behavior is not inevitable. And given that, it doesn't have to be condoned. There's no reason to condone it, right? We have control over how we behave. So, but the point I'm making is that um, if you believe, which most people have on some gut level do believe in biological determinism and think, oh, if it's in our genes, there's, no, there's nothing we can do. And it means that men, you know, well, maybe we'll give them a pass. They can cheat on their wives. Wives can't cheat on them. And we'll give them a pass. Maybe they can get into that bar fight or commit some sexual assaults here and there. Right. So a lot of people are scared about that biological reality, that truth getting out into the world. Yeah. So instead of allowing that truth to get out into the world, what people do is they try to do science or interpret science or write about science or talk about science or write books, which I have a million of them in my office right now, that downplay the reality of um, biology in explaining sex differences that try to play up the role of culture as though this is some sort of an easier solution. Like, no, it's patriarchy. It's not biology. Um, so this is just an example of the motivation to downplay the reality of um, biological influences on behavior, I think, in general, because a lot of misunderstandings and logical errors. When it comes to... So that was easy. I'm just talking about aggression and sexual assault, right? It's much more sensitive when we're talking about sex itself. What does it mean to be male or female? Because right now, there are a lot of extremely vocal activists who have other kinds of agendas. Um, and mostly, you know, I have been called transphobic for saying what I just said, that sex is a material reality. Um because there's a different narrative that is preferred by some activists uh, that is gaining ground because people are afraid to speak up and say, no, actually, sex is about your body. And but because the fear is that if we name that truth, if that gets out there, that there are two sexes and they're real, if we don't let this other narrative take over then people won't support transgender rights, yep. right? So there's a long link between those two things, but it's yep. as though if we think that sex is really something you can't define, it's something the doctor just assigns arbitrarily, it's um, something that you believe, and that's more real than what's in your body, that somehow, you know, and that to me is, is creating a huge amount of confusion. Um, it's not true. And, but that doesn't, you know, I'm in favor of talking about something like um, transgender rights. What do we mean by that? What kind of rights are you talking about? Do we mean living lives free of harassment, treating people with respect, having access to medical care, et cetera? Of course, almost everyone actually supports those rights. But if you're going to talk about other issues that are, you know, I think deserve discussion, should trans women have access to certain female spaces like um, domestic abuse shelters, that's worthy of discussion in my view. Yeah. But there's an effort to just shut down the discussion, to shut down the discussion of what sex actually is, and to promote certain narratives that, well, if I say I'm 
um, a man or male, then that's what I am. And then that changes the discussion and that changes the um, discussion about social policy in ways that aren't based in reality. So my view is that we stick to reality. We stick to the facts. We do our best job with that, but we have open, open conversations full of compassion for people who are living very difficult lives. Um, And how do we best support them given reality, not let's pretend that reality doesn't exist or that sex is a fiction. And that's the way we're going to advocate for people's rights. Cause to me, that doesn't work in the long run. That's just not going to be a stable solution going forward. So that's my view about pretty much everything is that we should learn how things work. We should be able to talk about it openly. This doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you're a racist or a transphobe. We've got to destigmatize discussions about, you know, in good faith discussions, people grappling with science and what are the implications of that science for social policy. But the reason I was getting so upset is because that is what I am trying to do. And I am in the process of being, having my reputation um, damaged by people at my own institution um, who are not, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know how much I want to go into there, but it's very upsetting personally, professionally. And just because this is what's happening at Harvard, a place I really care about, and it's happening at institutions, as you know, all over the world now. And people are not standing up for the principles that I think are really, really important. And that ultimately we're all harmed if we can't say what we believe. I just had a student in here who is a Trump voter, who comes from a Republican family, a conservative Christian, who is just like, there's no way he would say what he believes in the classroom. He's just like, I cannot say most of what he believes in uh, discussions. Yeah. Um, because he's in the minority, his views are unpopular. And I think that's a travesty. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that that kind of slander of call, right. It's, it's the ultimate character kill shot, at least historically of calling somebody a racist or, or a transphobe that if that, when I was growing up, if that label, which was not used lightly, but if it was leveled against somebody, it was you know, a scarlet letter for that person. And so I'm curious what, why, what is the fear of, right? This seems like we've had a very reasonable conversation. You seem to have your head screwed on quite, quite properly. And that you're open to Thank you. I don't feel like it lately, but thank you. But what, what is, where do you think the fear comes from of allowing these kind of conversations to take place? Like who are these people who are trying to come after you? What are their reasons for doing that? I talked about uh, some uh, trans activists and there's allies of, of trans people who care about them and want them to live safe and happy lives. And I, I do understand, I don't want to be super judgmental here because I understand where the resistance yeah. is coming from. It is not easy to live life as a transgender person. There are a lot of political issues right now, as we know, in this country and in other countries where decisions are being made about their lives. So, you know, what do they have access to? What language should be used? Um, What rights do they have? And 
So I think that there is a desire to control that conversation and that when people deviate from the script and there it's not there isn't one script and the the there I don't think there there definitely isn't a trans community that has one view about these issues. Yeah. I've been talking to a lot of trans people who have disagree about a lot of this stuff. So this yeah. is that's not a monolith, but there is um, a particular brand of trans activism where certain language is off the table because it is seen as interfering with the advancement of um, certain sets of rights and undermining transgender rights. And so I can understand, I can understand that. So it's not, and it's not just trans um, vocal trans activists. There's a lot of people who are allied with them who are very active on social media, who are taking a stand and they think they're taking the right stand. They think they're taking the progressive stand that's going to benefit humanity. And I disagree. And lots of other people disagree and think we should be able to have conversations and use scientific language for various reasons that make sense. So, but instead of allowing the conversation, the conversation is shut down because people like me are just labeled transphobic for not agreeing with everything on the agenda, um, the language, the ideology. If you question any of it, or want, even want to have a conversation, the tactic is to shut it down with the, um, I think it's a bit of bullying. I think calling people names sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a w- good way to operate in an academic institution. It's not a good way to address issues, but it works because it is very hard yeah. to be have your reputation damaged in this particular way. Um it works and people are just caving all over the place because they don't want to be the next one who didn't do enough, who didn't do the right thing, who didn't capitulate, who didn't use the right words, who didn't have the right viewpoint. Um, and it's not, so people aren't teaching what I teach people. And if they are going anywhere near it, they're certainly, they're not, uh, it's hard to use the language that I use for now that my students have been awesome, you know, cause within the classroom, they're, they're very open and have been great. Um, it is, it's not this, my undergraduates it's, um, to be honest right now, it's mostly grad students in my department and other departments. Um, I assume who don't know you, they do not, Yeah, they do not, Yeah, but um, they know what I said on Fox and friends. And this is part of the problem. And you can, if you hear this, you can just Google it. I said something on Fox and friends about what I basically, what I just said to you, and that did not go over well. In particular, um, there are some trans activists who, or just trans people who, um, and their allies who uh, were, uh, you know, offended by this sort of blunt talk about sex and think that it is, um, especially talking to conservative outlets like that is damaging. Um, And I think that people should be talking the part of the problem is science has been so politicized that people do not trust science anymore. There's tons of surveys that show uh, even people aren't sending their kids to college because of what's going on because they don't trust higher ed and science. People aren't getting vaccinated and people are actually dying because science is so politicized. Mm -hmm. So it's not just sex and gender. I mean, this is happening and it's not even just science. It's higher ed. It's even 
primary education. People, you know, everything is um, highly politicized and people are literally dying and I'm not in favor of that. So anything I can do to talk across the aisle to people I usually disagree with about other issues I'm going to do. Um, To me, that, that is the only, that's the only way out of this is to, that's what I think to have those conversations. And, you know, I, I always tend to believe that there is, there almost always is a way to be honest and positive and decent at the same time. And I, it just in having this conversation, it, it makes me think that, you know, we should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We should be able to say what's true and also be kind. Um, and I, I would hope and believe that most reasonable people in our country and around the world, if they heard a long form conversation with you, would come to the exact same viewpoint, provided they hadn't been totally brainwashed. Um, and, you know, I know you have to go and, and we're, we're, no, it's all right. I, that's okay. Well, um, you know, I, you know, that is my hope for doing this work that I do is that they, there are such opportunities to be found in nuanced conversations that didn't really exist 10 years ago where you can actually get to know somebody. I mean, if someone was really interested in your views, they would be able to get that very quickly in a two hour or three hour conversation that you've had many times over with people who are just curious about what your views are. Right. But then, so what happens though, what just happened recently is someone, it happened to be someone um, just went through a bunch of my podcasts and clipped out a few things that I said and took them way out of context. And yeah, if you are talking to somebody for two hours and you say a lot of different things. You can take a few words here and there and make somebody sound pretty bad. Um, and it's, you know, it, yeah, it hurts because I really, you know, I can say this all over the place, but I genuinely really care yeah. about people who are suffering because of whatever differences they have. And they're trying to live in a way that's authentic to them. And I've talked to so many trans people and I feel like I have a pretty a decent understanding of what it's like. And then the torture they feel about how their bodies don't reflect how they feel on the inside. And then you're trying to make changes and live a good life. And so I'm not oblivious to how words can hurt. They're powerful. But I think we're also conditioning people to feel that they can't even hear them, that they can't have discussions, that we can't disagree. And that's where I have a problem. Even in what you have said in this conversation, I mean, first of all, it sounds like you have fairly consistent conversations with people who are trans and that you're you're aware of a lot of what they have gone through, what a lot of their life stories are like. And you said this earlier that they're not all a monolith. It isn't as though all trans people agree on every single thing. That's right. Right. A, I, I, of I course. Think, I think that that is that is something that I think is extremely important to highlight and underline that they're individuals and individuals are complicated and disagree with other human beings about a variety of different things. And so when we're having these conversations about what you're experiencing, the pushback you're getting, the slander that you're going through and you know, it does correct me if, if I'm wrong about this. It sounds like it is generally coming from an activist bent of the trans movement. Maybe, maybe you can. Well, I don't know for sure. I can't really say that. Um, one of the people who went after me was not 
trans as far as I know, but I have had two other, I had a cancellation of a talk I was supposed to give. And that was definitely, um, that was this whole thing that happened online with a, um, trans woman and her friends and allies. Um, and then there was another thing here at Harvard. Um, I don't, and I don't want to comment on the status of that person, but, um, I do, I really just appreciate you emphasizing this point that the community, if there is one is doesn't all, they don't all share the same views. And I think it's patronizing to, try to feed people the science or the twisted science that I think they need to hear. Yeah. I, that is, I think the height of patronizing because I, why should I be making decisions about how, what they need to hear and, and just sort of spoon feeding them something that's going to make them comfortable or advance their agendas. That's not what an educator should be doing. And an educator shouldn't be deciding on their language and their views and what they teach because they've been intimidate, intimidated. That's, I mean, just think about that. That's how we're teaching now because everybody's scared, but that is actually what's happening. I, I understand the short-term incentives there to try to deflect reputational damage for yourself yes, and capitulating too. in that. But as a longer-term proposition, right, as a wise action, by doing that, you are basically ceding all power to somebody who you used the word bullying earlier. I mean, to me, that's what a lot of this sounds like is ideology and bullying. Um, yeah, but if you have a family and you are the breadwinner, you know, you can't really take a lot of chances. And if you are delicate or not even delicate, I, I think I, I don't feel delicate, but it's very tough to be feel, you know, ostracized or judged, or I don't know who recognizes me and think thinks I'm a horrible person when I'm walking around campus. That's a horrible feeling. I've been here for 20 years. I've done an awesome job. I've worked yep. my ass off. And now, like, yep. now it's, I'm, a, you know, nobody does, this is just allowed. Um, what is your what is your lived experience now like on campus? I mean, I assume you you have years and years of friendships. I'm sure with many people who work there. What what is what is life at Harvard like for you now? No, I don't have years and years of friendships. I did. I mean, um, yes, some people I have. I had. There are some people who have definitely stood by me, who are extremely important to me. And, um, but these are people who are big names and like are completely secure in yeah. their careers and can speak out. Um, I've been really let down by some other people I've had years of friendships with, uh, and I not comfortable here. Yeah. Can I ask you? I'm comfortable with my students. I have to say again, they're awesome, yeah. but otherwise it's like now it is not a comfortable environment. I heard you say this in a previous conversation about your students that I, and I would imagine this is part of why you feel comfortable around them. They, because they, they're young and they come to you full of curiosity. For the most they, part. Yeah. Yeah. They're not, the grad students are complete. They're already like indoctrinated or I don't know what it is, but they're very, they're, it's just a very, um, it's generational of course, but yeah, the, the younger ones are really still really open-minded and they're getting to know me and they may have read about what I said in the crimson or online or whatever. And, um, they're not judgy, they're open and they're going to maybe read my book or take my class. And I, I don't really know how to explain that, but, or maybe the ones who are judgy, I'm, I'm not seeing, but, yeah. um, 
you're, you're, and they would tell me if they disagree with me. You know, it's they're they're great. And you're open to that, right? You're open to. I love it. They're yeah. love having a student. You know, if they're polite, right? I and they express their views. That is the best. If they disagree, and we can kind of work through that in the classroom, because other people probably disagree too and aren't speaking up. You know, let's bring that out. That's how we learn and grow. I learn and grow from that. Your uh, your colleagues that you mentioned that you were a little bit disappointed or very disappointed by, like, what, do they do they come to you? Here we in, go. Do they, do, they come, go. do they come to you in privacy and say, you know, Carol, you really should just shut up for a little bit? Do they just not speak to you? How, how does that tend to go? Okay. Yes. Um, someone, uh, who I, yes, someone who had, uh, I had a long history with, yes, specifically said, don't do anything. Don't say anything. Just keep your mouth shut and keep going and do the good work that you're doing after a few things happened that were completely unjust and should have never happened and damaged my reputation. I was told by this person who's senior to me to, um, not do anything. And then other people, um, say that they're outraged and this should never, there's other things that happened that um, should never have happened, blah, blah. But then uh, this is not said publicly. I even had the president of another thing happened at Antioch College in a talk I was supposed to give that ended up being canceled. Um, the president of the college called me to apologize and say this never should have happened, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but then in public, said something completely different. So this is happening all over the place where people are saying in private, they support me, this never should have happened. But then in public, people say something very different or don't say anything at all. Yeah. Do you mark that up fundamentally to the change? I told you earlier that I graduated from college in 2006, really before social media was as big as it is now. I mean, Facebook was just coming online. Is this what you attribute a lot of this to that people are now so so publicly accessible and you can shame someone anytime you want online yes 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 um so um it, i do think it is the, because it's been the last five or six years and i think that coincides with social media really taking up taking off and uh, people have a lot of power. So small groups of people can have a huge amount of power. And any if there's any misstep anywhere, if, if you know I say something on this interview that somebody doesn't like, there could be some little quote that somebody's going to tweet out. Who knows, right? So I would be super, I wouldn't even give this interview or I would be so cautious that I can't say anything. But that is what's happening. Everybody knows it. Everybody's scared. Yeah. So people just stop talking. Literally, people are not talking to me in my own department. So I, I mean, some people are, but it's kind of a lo lo much lonelier than it used to be. That's for sure. It's incredible. Um, I want to go over a couple quick things before we wrap up. Um, okay, and then I have to go in like two minutes. Okay. Um, Sorry. Let, let's let, let's just let's just end with this then. I mean, first, I just want to say I have a lot of admiration for you, and I think there are a lot of people out there who you've never met who feel that way. Um, it's incredible to me what you're going through in a university setting, given the fact that from my upbringing, universities were where you went to have these conversations. They weren't where you would go to be intimidated and to not speak up or to have conversations that might change your mind about something or challenge an idea that you had before. And I just I have to, I just have to interject. There's a lot of DE, it's all the DEI groups. And I didn't even mention that, but it's the diversity, equity, and inclusion committees within departments 
the people who are in these committees that are spreading all over the place and growing in size and time and energy that are put into them. And in the college, there's a massive DEI infrastructure. They need something to do. They have to justify their existence, right? So they have to come after people like me. And that is definitely what's happening. So it's not their fault, right? This is what they're supposed to be doing, it seems like. And administrators don't know what to do either when difficult, tricky situations come up because there's all this DEI infrastructure. It seems like you're supposed to be really responding to the vulnerabilities of your students who are offended. That's sort of the word that everyone is getting. So I can't really blame those who are offended and, you know, complaining. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I I just want to close on this. I mean, it it does seem to me that, you know, we all need to grow up a little bit and to, I think a way to do that, right. I understand the concern about being cruel to minorities and that the history that has, has uh, taken place with people who who have had very difficult lives oftentimes um the 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 response to that cannot be shutting down open expression in a university setting or denying basic reality to my mind exactly no you just said that very clearly yes where do we go from here this this i want to be the last question from your perspective what is the way out what is the positive option that if you know, there is a pushback to the kind of intimidation that you're getting and it spreads. How do you see this ending in a way that um, you would view as a, as a potentially positive uh, reaction to what you've experienced and a lot of other people have experienced too? I would say more people need to grow a huge set of cojones because I have been so disappointed in so many people who are just scared and giving into it. Again, I understand it's very difficult. There's a lot on the line, but if people have integrity and care about this country, care about our freedoms, care about education, you got to have some, yeah, okay, balls uh, or whatever you want to call it, ovaries, big ovaries, that doesn't quite work, but a spine, a backbone, um, take some risks deal, you know, I'm not it, it, being ostracized or being called names actually really does is tough. Like you'd almost yeah. rather have some sort of sanction or penalty. It's social exclusion or whatever the heck it is that's going on um, is really hard. And that is what is, I have it easy compared to so many other people, especially women mm. um, like in the UK right now, Kathleen Stock go on Twitter. She, she's getting a huge amount of abuse um, because of her views. And there are women who are speaking out. They, you know, I don't agree with them on everything, but I agree that they have the right to their views. These are scholars. These are mostly feminist scholars who have a certain set of views that are, people are trying to shut them down in violent, like vicious ways. And they're really suffering. So what I'm complaining about is nothing. Yeah. Um, compared to what other people are going through. People need to stand up and defend people who they see being attacked for their views, right? They need to take a risk and speak out and not just let their friends and colleagues suffer for unjust reasons. If they're an educator, they should believe in education and remember why they got involved in the first place and stand up for those principles, defend people who are being bullied and defend the right to free speech and vigorous open discussion. And let's teach our students that they're stronger than people are making them out to be. 
that they can they can handle the truth. It doesn't mean you should be insensitive or expect everyone just to deal. Um, you can be a sensitive person who believes in open discussion. And I don't always do it right, but I think that is what the effort needs to be. And anyone who can speak out needs to. Um, and otherwise just hide under a rock because this is just going to get worse and worse. Yeah. I think that's very well put in a good place to close. Um, it was okay. a real, real pleasure to meet you and I really, so it's your pleasure to meet you too. Um, I hope we get to meet in person at some time. Um, Me too. we can do this again, but thank you for what you're doing. I hope you keep it up. Thank you. I hope you keep up what you're doing too. And best of luck. Thanks girl. Okay. Good luck. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you are finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com backslash keep talking podcast. I truly appreciate all of you who are supporting the show. 